0: It's these stories that we tell ourselves about how maybe we're just not enough yet, that really all life is exactly enough. It's really just how we approach it. And I just think the regenerative practice, again, whether you're working with your plot of land in the front of your house or you're working with the mindset and the system of your business, it works.
2: We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right
1: now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in.
2: So hello, Emma. Hello, I thought I'd start out with a little reading today from a passage that's been a favorite of mine for a really long time. This is from Thomas Wolfe of Time in the River. Okay, here goes. October is the richest of the seasons. The fields are cut, the granaries are full, the bins are loaded to the brim with fatness, and from the cider press the rich brown oozings of the York Imperials run. The bee bores to the belly of the yellowed grape. The fly gets old and fat and blue. He buzzes loud, crawls slow, creeps heavily to death on sill and ceiling. The sun goes down in blood and pollen across the bronzed and mown fields of old October.
1: That's so lovely and so October. Yes. It's an old favorite
2: of mine and my dad's, and he and I used to just sort of enjoy this together. We would quote it and read it, and when October rolled around, we would remind each other of the lines. So it was very nostalgic for me, and I have a story about this passage. Would you like me to tell it? Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you'd say that. Anyway, it's sort of a funny story. I'm not proud of it, but I'll tell it anyway. When I was in high school, I was in a speech class, and we were supposed to prepare a reading, something to stand up and perform for the audience. And so I thought, oh, you know, it was October, and I thought, that's perfect, that passage that dad and I love so much. I'm going to read that. So the day came for my presentation, and back in those days, we did not have backpacks. You walked to school, and you carried your books in front of you. Sounds crazy now. So if you had a lot of books, it was kind of arduous. So I picked up that book, and I thought, I don't want to carry this whole thing. It was a paperback. So I thought, oh, I'll just tear the page out. And then when I'm finished with this assignment. I'll tape it back in, you know, no problem. Nobody will ever know, just a little scotch tape. So I did that. I ripped it out. And then, of course, you know what happened. I forgot. And I don't know what happened to the page. But later on, my dad said, oh, he said, I was so looking forward to getting out of Time in the River and reading it again. And I was so looking forward to getting to that passage. And I got to the page And it was gone. And I had to confess what I did. And he reminds me of that often. That's hilarious. (laughs) So it totally was gone forever? Yeah, I think so. I don't remember. I don't remember ever putting it back. So the (laughs) the book was maimed. Mutilated. It was. I'm so sorry. I apologize to the world for that now. And I certainly don't recommend anyone, high schoolers
1: or otherwise, tearing pages out of books for convenience. I admit my foolery. Well, hopefully the needs for that are so far. I mean, besides backpacks, which you could have put one in, now we have phones you could take a picture you could do a screenshot you could print it off and yeah take the
2: page with you or whatever
1: yeah so anyway well that's how
2: much you love that passage
1: it's beautiful it
2: is beautiful and to me it just encompasses all of october and thomas Wolfe was from Asheville, and that's near where i grew up in Asheville, north carolina so the vibe of it is very nostalgic to me as well
1: mm-hmm. so yeah i thought i would just share that thank you you're welcome And thank you, listeners, for being here on The Good Dirt Podcast. We're here every Friday with interviews, and sometimes we have some bonus episodes for you all, so stay tuned for that. And we're just talking all about slow living and sustainable living. And if you are a regular listener, or even if you're just here for the first time, we would really appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and also a subscribe. So if you're listening on Spotify, that means that you press the follow button and it'll automatically update your feed with new episodes. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, you click the subscribe button. And I don't use the other podcast platforms, but I'm assuming that it's something similar to those. So a review and a subscribe would be so helpful for us in growing the show and spreading the word on our show. We appreciate you and we thank you for that. And we're really excited to introduce today's guest. Mom, do you want to take it away? Sure.
2: Her name is Monique Allen. She's a regenerative landscape designer, author, and business coach. She is CEO and creative director of The Garden Continuum, which is a landscape design company which brings the principles of regenerative agriculture to ornamental gardening, with the result being a really unique collaboration between the dreams of the client, the skill and the knowledge of
1: the design team, and utmost respect for the needs of the environment. The central work of the Garden Continuum is to create outdoor living spaces, both public and private, that draw people out into those spaces and begin to build that reconnection with nature. So you know we love that on The Good Dirt. In this episode, you'll hear how Monique has. Evolved
2: in her understanding and practice of design principles that reinfuse life into systems and landscapes that have been abused by degenerative practices.
1: You'll also hear her explain the difference in a landscape as something pretty to look at compared with what she calls a lifescape or a space that calls you in and actually asks you to interact with nature in an active and participatory way. You'll also hear about her book, Stop Landscaping, Start Lifescaping. Through regenerative gardening, Monique breathes new
2: life into the soil, and through her personalized landscape business coaching, her goal is to help clients build a high-integrity business and live a rich life. This was a really rich conversation that touched on so many of our favorite Good Dirt topics,
1: and we think it's a great listen, and it'll give you lots to think about, too. So let's get started. Here's Monique Allen with The Garden Continuum.
0: Thanks for having me. I own the Garden Continuum, which is a landscape design build and fine gardening company. And I've been in the industry for 37 years. So I'm fast approaching the end of my fourth decade as an ornamental gardener. And there's been a ton of evolution in those decades. I started in my late teens and I just freelanced for a while as a gardener. Just really... Starting with perennial gardens, because back in the 80s, landscaping was much simpler, much more mow the lawn, put some mulch down, maybe plant a few shrubs. It just was simpler. And I was on the heels of this resurgence of going back to the days of Gertrude Jekyll and beautiful floral presentations within the garden. And so I was like the flower girl. And I connected with a lot of guy landscape contractors and they weren't gonna do anything with flowers. And so that's really how I got my start. And what happened was I did my undergraduate in entrepreneurship. And then I went and did my graduate work in garden design. And in there, kind of hack schooled botany and horticulture and organic land care, conservation, and just little by little learned how enormously vast the world of nature really is. And with each little step, evolved my business from freelance to a sole proprietorship to a corporation, and then encompassed all of these new ways to think about ornamental gardening that could also be. Organic, sustainable, regenerative, ecologically minded. And it was definitely swimming against the tide initially. I'm very happy to say that it's certainly not mainstream, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot more resources out there to support regenerative ornamental gardening, which is what I do today.
2: Wow. So around what year was this when you started this shift would you say so i would say that i was probably
0: a good halfway through my career it was right around i would say the early 2000s i was invited by a neighbor that believe it or not i was in the middle of a land dispute with which was really weird it was an awful experience yet it was what it was and i thought My neighbor hated me, but apparently my neighbor had an enormous amount of respect for me and I had no idea. She was very politically connected and put my name in as a really good choice as a conservation commissioner. So I ended up working for nine years on the Franklin Conservation Commission in my town and they sent me to school. I became a certified commissioner and everything in my world changed. In the beginning, it was like, Fertilizer was 10, 10, 10. If you had bugs, you put a chemical on them. If you had weeds, you put a chemical on them. It was like, I didn't know anything. I started into this world and all of a sudden I realized the dangers, the detriments of convention. And that really what I needed to do was go backwards, go back in time and look at a really different way. And it's been an education ever since. Yeah.
2: Wow, you were really ahead of your time then in the early to mid-2000s. And as you say, back then gardening and landscaping, if your garden needed fertilizing, you would go get the stuff and get it at the (laughs) nursery and pile it on. And I was just actually telling my husband the story of how my parents were huge gardeners. And I remember my whole childhood, there was gallons of that blue stuff around all the time. (laughs) Gallons. What blue stuff? Was it liquid or it was called miracle Grow?
1: Was it the little like round things?
2: No, it was blue liquid. It was powdered form and you would mix it up with water. And so it made this blue liquid and it was a miracle. You put it on something and it would go zoing. And then sometime around when I first started gardening here in Washington, someone said one time, it's like eating too much sugar. It's like a diabetic. You turn your plants into diabetics. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And that was the first I had heard about these artificial, these synthetic fertilizers
1: being an artificial way of replacing the nutrients in your plants. What is fine gardening and ornamental gardening?
0: Yeah, the way I think about fine gardening is that the best way to think about it is if you look at like woodworking broadly, you can put wood together and you can build a lot of things. If you move to fine woodworking, You start looking at the very fine details of the kinds of woods you use, the different grains in the woods and why you would choose one over another, the way woods join and whether you would join them cross grain or actually making the grains look like they're running in line. And these are those very fine details that at the end of the day, maybe they don't matter. The house will stand either way, but maybe they do matter because visually and aesthetically they're so much more beautiful. I'll never forget when I was looking to buy a playset, I ended up using a playset that used white cedar, and it wasn't just because the white cedar wood was a non-rotting, longer-lasting wood. They also grew and harvested the wood such that each timber was actually a full tree. So it had the center core, so you would get some checking on the outside, but it could never check through. And so it's those kinds of details that make fine gardening. And ornamental gardening really is just to signify that we're not growing for food. So we may be growing for cut flowers. We may be growing just for aesthetic and beauty. We may be gardening for food for animals or for environmental support. I personally do a lot of medicinal gardening and food gardening, and we incorporate this into a lot of our clients now, more and more, it's really fabulous, are growing small complements of vegetables in their garden. But our sustainable central work is to create outdoor living spaces that draw our people out into those spaces and begin to build That reconnection with nature and then also in communities doing the same thing with park design, trying to get people out of their cars walking as opposed to just driving everywhere and walking on concrete.
2: That is a fascinating concept. Can you give us an example of a setting that would encourage people to actually get out of their car and walk over, but what would call them in? I love that question. I'm going to answer it two ways. One, I will
0: introduce my Lifescape method. So the Lifescape method was, there's a lot of words to answer these questions and people have really short attention spans when they look at websites and stuff. (laughs) So I was like, I got to like take down here. Yeah. And so I came up with the term life which is certainly not a new term. There are landscape companies named it. You can see it all over the internet. But what I was playing with was that the idea of a landscape as being something that's really pretty that you look at. So you would mm-hmm. go out and plein air paint a landscape, but you're not in it. You're looking at it and you're painting it. You might see it out your window or whatever. So there's nothing bad. It's just in my mind, a little bit two dimensional. And a life scape was instead something that would call you in and actually ask you to interact. And it would be something that you lived in. It would be an active participatory behavior with nature. And so I was juxtaposing that against what had happened in the industry because it got so commoditized. And what I was seeing was two sides. One, I was seeing something that I'm calling feature scaping, which is like, oh, I want a fire pit. Oh, I want a vegetable garden. Oh, I want a pool. Oh, I need a hot tub. Oh, I need a patio. Oh, I need a deck. And then little by little, you're just putting feature on top of feature on top of feature and then realizing that you're still not going outside. Like it hasn't done anything. And then the flip side of that was what I call deadscapes. These were the landscapes that were eventually forced into the land on a hydroponic drip of synthetic chemical fertilizers and were cared for with kind of like a status quo. Oh, it's Tuesday. We have to fertilize. Oh, it's Thursday. We have to mulch. Oh, it's Friday. We need to... Shear the shrubs, like whatever. And so the simple answer for me was lifescape. A lifescape needs to be organized, it needs to be healthy, and it needs to have wild wow factor. Those three things are required because as human beings, things that are not organized, and I'm not talking about formality. I'm just talking about purposeful setup so that there's some organization like every house, even if you're a cluttery person, has a kitchen in the kitchen room, a bathroom in the bathroom, a bedroom in the bedroom. There is a sense of order. So trying to develop the sense of order in a place is number one. Number two is health. What Human beings are geared to be drawn and attracted to health. So it's almost like we can't help it when there's something healthy in our midst. We're drawn to walk toward it. Health and vitality always starts with the soil and moves up into the plants and has a resonance which will draw you in. you don't need to understand plants. You'll just know because your vibration will connect with the health vibration of the plant. And then the third is wow factor because again, as humans, we love playing. We love pretty. That's why we've got a whole industry of fashion. We've got a whole industry of beautiful food presentation. We've got a whole industry of websites and media that have all of this psychological connection to what we're attracted to. So Simply put, landscape is organization, health vitality, and wow factor. And the way you draw people in, if it's a private space, when I'm designing, I'm really looking at the sequence of desire and where it's coming from. So if somebody really wants to just show off for their neighbors, I'm probably not going to be the best landscape professional for them. If they're looking to come home to themselves, to come home to their home, gather their family, I'm their person because I will help to draw out of them where their comfort is and match that up with their land and with what's possible in their area. And for public spaces, I'll tell you a little story. I had the opportunity to build a park, a small pocket park. It's called Straw Hat Park. It's actually on my website. And it's a tiny little park and it's sandwiched between the town hall a Starbucks, a restaurant, and a busy road, and a parking lot, and it was just a green blop of weedy grass and an asphalt walkway that went through it. And there's a beautiful woman in my town who is just so community minded, and she got the idea of doing a pocket park. And we worked for three years together, fundraised, designed, had a great team of people on this committee had an enormous amount of pushback from people saying it was a waste of time, waste of money. But we had an equally, I would say more than equal, double, triple the amount of people that loved the idea. Fast forward, we built the park. And the coolest thing in the world is some of the most vocal people who were opposed to the park took it upon themselves to come to me and Jean and tell us that park was transformational, that they couldn't visualize it, they didn't understand it but that it had actually transformed that part of town.
1: I just got goosebumps. That's so cool. So
2: cool. So you used the term pocket park. I'm just assuming that means a park that's sort of tucked in. It's a space that... There seemingly no of their use for? Is that a way of explaining yeah, that? Yeah, so
0: these are urban parks. Uh, New York City has many of them. And basically in urban and suburban areas, that, that you get these little pieces of land that get landlocked between buildings and they end up being very leftover, untended, unused. It's, it's like uncertainty. We just cut through them. Those are spaces. It doesn't really matter what size that we can do what would be called low impact design and develop a garden that takes very little care. It needs care. Every garden needs care. If it's a garden, it needs care, but very low. There's no irrigation system in there and it thrives. It does really well. So it's usually in a little leftover spot and it's really meant to create connectivity with nature for people in those areas.
2: So what would be just the real basic elements of a pocket park? Obviously plants, but what else? What kind of hardscaping? So
0: in this park, the way we did it was a very odd parcel of land. And it was, if you think of the long corridor, the right side of the corridor was a little flat with a hill that went up. And then the other half of the corridor was a little flat with a walkway and then a big brick wall. And so what we did was we wanted the cut through. We wanted the walk. So we made it a foot bigger and went from asphalt to concrete. We did a paver patio in the center. And then on either side of the patio, we put pockets of lawn. And then all around it is garden, benches. We found these amazing pieces of granite block that were on the railway line. We got the MBTA to donate them to us and we created these places where kids could just climb and we made this one layer we call it the wedding cake that's these granite blocks just stacked up so the kids can can climb we ended up building checkers and chess tables so there are these cool tables that have the board right on them and hang the little pieces and And they're like permanent like they're permanent you can't move them and the pieces come and go people replenish them And then we put a really cool fountain in there that is three boulders that we drilled up the center and put a little light in it. And it just bubbles the water out, but there's no pond. So you get the sound. And then the plants are all with the low impact and sustainability in mind, but also they were designed to be pollinator friendly so that we get a lot of bees and butterflies and all different mobs and cool creatures that come through there. So I think those are the elements because you're really looking for sight, sound, that vibrational hum of a place. You're looking for a little bit of closed, like it's a place you can get a little hug, come Mm -hmm. out of your world and get that little hug and be able to sit or play.
1: I wanna go visit. Where is this, did you say Franklin? This is in Medfield. My company
0: is in Medfield, Massachusetts, and it is on my website, so I can share the link and you can pop in. And there's a great little video about our opening day. Oh my gosh.
1: Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms, wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh, wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants, From their supply chain, to their manufacturing processes, to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill, to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small-town, made-in-America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional Marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com.
2: As you're talking, I'm reminded of when you walk around, I guess I'm thinking specifically Paris. I was going to say European cities, but I'm really thinking specifically Paris. You'll come upon these little odd pieces of land where somebody has done something like that. There'll be a bench. There'll be some plants. There'll be like a probably a statue in Paris. A statue like or place. plants climbing up a wall of a building or something. Just something to go, oh, somebody cared about this spot. And made a beautiful place to look and pause and probably some in the summers and fragrances. And then go, oh my gosh, I want to live here. That's yeah. It. <laughs> yeah, so I guess just creating a sense of place in no place. I think this idea of creating a sense of place is so
0: important. I've been lucky enough to spend time in Europe. I lived in Paris as a small child and went back several times. And I've spent some time in Italy studying the gardens there. One of the things that I love about the European Thought about gardens is that especially the front garden is really important, like that entry, the welcome garden. So I'm really big on how we create the welcome in the front of our houses because today's architecture is really weird, especially in suburbs. It's like everything leads with a garage.
1: Mm -hmm. And it's, I
0: really don't want to look at the garage or the driveway. Like, that's not what I want to see. I want to see something else. And people go in their houses through their garages. So it's like trying to entice people to either use their front door, to use a side door, to create some kind of a preamble to actually getting to the house or leaving the house. And so even if it's when you drive in that first corner of your property, being somewhat of a beacon to your home, that you would leave with a smile and you would come back with a smile because your sunflowers are blooming or your peonies are blooming. And just that little cue at the beginning, I think is a really amazing way to slow us down and to create a sense of place in our homes.
2: Yes. It's funny what you, you said about the architecture, I guess, contemporary architecture, like in the suburbs. And we've talked before about how the architecture of a place or a culture reflects the values. And so of that culture. So you think of the suburban America is the car.
0: <laughs> we worship the car. We just because do. Because
2: when you live in the suburbs, that's your only way you can get around and be in the community and, and even get your food and, and get your items of daily need. So that is so very interesting. Another thing I was going to ask you was, have you ever studied feng shui? I
0: would not say I would, I've studied it. I have absolutely read about it, though.
1: Yeah. Is that something you incorporate in garden design? I don't
0: because it's a real divine practice that someone would need to devote themselves to. I studied Japanese garden design when I was in college doing my grad work. And I loved one of the things my teacher said, he said, you can study Japanese gardens and you can pull little aspects, but you will never, ever be able to make a Japanese garden ever. You're not Japanese and you're not in Japan. And I really took that to heart. Like I... I thought, wow, I never thought of that. I never, ever thought of that before. So a lot of what I think about is, because I love what I learned in there about the Shinto practice. What's that? Shinto is, it's a spirituality. They wouldn't even call it a religion in Japan. They don't actually have a word for religion. And it really is that all things are imbued with spirit. The rocks, the plants, the house you build, the car you drive everything is imbued with spirit. And if we're able to approach everything with a sense of honor and respect, then we actually move more slowly and we behave with more intention. So we care more for our car if we believe it's imbued with spirit. We're not talking about anthropomorphizing anything. We're just talking about intentional respect. And I was so enamored by that and have decided that's what I took from that study. And my job is to help the people who ask me to make gardens and care for their gardens to help them to reconnect so that natural elevation of respect just comes. Nobody has to beat it into anyone. It just comes.
2: That's amazing. I love that so much too. I'm enamored. (laughs) (laughs) We talk a whole lot about regenerative agriculture on this show, but we haven't talked so much about regenerative gardening. And this is a word you use a lot in describing your business. So how would you describe regenerative gardening and what regenerative practices do you use in your business and with your clients for their home landscapes? Yes. Regeneration is
0: actually central to my theories about living, period. So whether it's building, maintaining, designing gardens, developing a business, curating and nurturing teams within a business as a business coach that I actually have a community called the Regenerative Business Community. So, regeneration to me is really important. And the way I see it, kind of the top, just the term itself, is reinfusing life into a system. And when it comes to gardening, a lot of what I come upon is land that has been really abused by construction, by degenerative practices that deplete soils and deplete plants, really bad pruning practices, bad plant choices. And so a lot of my work is repair work. And so I realized that I needed to figure out a way to infuse these landscapes with life's life again. And I didn't understand how to do it before. And then I became an accredited organic land care provider through NOFA, which is the Northeast Organic Farming Association. And that was on the heels of doing all this conservation work. And I was getting a lot of information that was telling me about how to be organic and how to be sustainable or what that meant, but nobody was telling me how to do it. And so something as simple as like taking a soil test. And you do a soil test and you get this reading, and then what? Nobody could tell me, what do I do with this? If it says I'm low in nitrogen, I'm not going to go, the conventional method is you're low in nitrogen, get some of the blue stuff and put nitrogen in there. And it's water soluble, and it uptakes with the plant, and the plant looks greener and happier. But the problem is the soil isn't in good shape. So what I did was I cycled back and I started studying regenerative agriculture, and bringing some regenerative agriculture practices into ornamental gardening. So, using a lot more compost, using biochar, using bioinoculants, using fish emulsion, using lower till methods so that we weren't tilling as much, especially good soils. But we do end up having to till bad soils because it really isn't soil. And incorporating those things inadvertently, what that does is if you look at, let's say, somebody gives you a design and landscape company A is going to put it in a conventional way, and landscape company B is going to put it in a regenerative way, company B, even if all of their pricing structure is exactly the same, is going to be 20 to 30 percent higher because we're adding all of this additional activity and material to kickstart the ecology in that soil. And we're not looking to manhandle it into something that we have to amend all the time, every time for the rest of our lives. Really, I like to look at gardening as a Kickstarter campaign. You are bringing all the building blocks for ecology and putting them in the right place at the right time, in the right quantity so that mother nature can do what she knows exactly how to do when she's got all this stuff available to her. And then Going forward, you're making sure to keep support. If there's not enough rain, maybe you're adding a little water or maybe you're adding a little bit of like leaf mulch or something. So regenerative work says, number one, how is this place damaged and in need of life to be reinfused? How do I do that would be number two, what are the products? And then number three would be ongoing watching and nurturing and only offering what's needed when needed.
2: I think it's important to point out to people that the words sustainable and regenerative are not the same thing. And I think we use them interchangeably without thinking about it. Or we say
1: them one after the other.
2: Right. Or use them in the same context or whatever. What you said in the beginning of that was regenerative means restoring life and putting it back in the places that are damaged. In other words, healing
0: Healing. It is absolutely healing work and sustainability. When I think about sustainability, I think about you're setting that system up when you're infusing life into it, you're setting it up so that it can have the wherewithal to be more sustainable long term. So, this is where things like right plant, right place, working with natives. You can also work with appropriate non-natives, determining what actions need to be applied on an annual basis to help with that sustainability. Nothing in the landscape is static, it's not stasis. And I think that's really important because especially when we start talking about things like pruning practices, the reason why there are such incredibly violent pruning practices out there (laughs) is because there's this idea That if I put a plant in front of my house, it should just stay that way. And I see people putting hemlocks in front of houses because you can buy them nice and big. But a hemlock wants to be 90 feet tall and
2: 30 feet wide. Why in God's name (laughs) would you put it in front of your corner of your garage? It's definitely not going to work. The subdivisions that pop up and people want like instant landscaping. So they pop these things in and then 20 years later, you've got these. Forests in front of the front door.
1: Yeah, totally. I think that's a fun segue into. I'd like to ask about some of your biggest challenges in your work. And that could be like personally as a business, growing your business and your mission within the work that you do. What are some of the biggest discussions you have with your clients? What are some of the biggest misunderstandings? If I look at the challenges as far as business practice, initially the challenge was to
0: get people to be willing to pay more to do better work. And I loved your last podcast when you were talking about the cost of food and just how expensive food's gotten because people, they don't even know where food comes from anymore. And so I think that early on was one of my biggest challenges. And that came from the fact that additional 20 or 30% that's gonna go toward the regenerative practice of making sure that their soil could actually sustain what we were planting. But the other piece of it was I'm really, I'm hell bent on making sure that the people who work for me are being paid fairly. It was very important to me that we only worked five days a week. We work a good, strong, long week. We can put 10 hours in a day, no different than farmers. But I wanted people to have their weekends. I wanted to make sure they were paid over time, that they had insurance and paid time off and family leave and whatever they needed. Like, why would I have to ask something of them that the client wouldn't want for their own child. And that was a hurdle and uh, really dug my heels in. And I think I was, I think I was angry for a while at my clientele for not being better. But then I realized that being angry made no sense at all. Instead, what I needed to do was just bring honor to what I was doing and why I was doing it. And that meant that I had to figure out how to write about it. That's why I wrote the book. That's why my website has so much free content, free ebooks, free blogs, because I figured the best possible way was to put the education out there for the people who wanted it. And then I would attract the right people. So that was a huge hurdle and it took a long time. And it wasn't like I had the idea and then whew, I was there. It was yeah. a lot of this swimming up and down. <laughs> you mean that's not how it works?
2: It's not how it works.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. It's been a long game. And I would say that I learned a lot after the Great Recession because. My work is so discretionary. He's really worried about whether they can make their mortgage. They're going to kick me to the curb. Like, I'm. Of course. So, being so discretionary, I had to help connect it to the vitality of their lives. And that really came into two big decisions that I made, which were very hard decisions, but. I'm really happy now that I did them. And one was to move into this regenerative space and be really vocal about it. And the second was to shrink my company to become hyper local. And I'm, I think I'm in my fifth or sixth year of local service. And basically what that meant was I created a bullseye around my shop and I decided that I wanted 50% of my work in this basic contained area, pretty much in one town, and then All the rest of my work just in the towns that touch, and with a little tiny percentage that would be work that I would travel for, and there would have to be a real reason or purpose to travel to that place. And we're a multi million dollar company, and we can do that with barely driving. And that was my way to give back to reduce my carbon footprint. I had people telling me I was out of my mind. Yeah. I was giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars at work. I wasn't selling it, I was literally just giving it to people. And a lot of people thought I was crazy. But in my mind, what we're doing when we build a business or when we build a garden is we're committing to a long game. And we have to take incremental action and stack that action on top of each other. And it is definitely like a hard thing to have these ideas that seem so wacky and have so many people tell you you're out of your mind and then just keep doing it anyway.
1: Oh, we should hire you to coach us. Yeah. <laughs> I know, we should. This is um, helping me. Yeah.
2: You were talking about the challenge of getting your clients to pay more and how we were talking about on the last podcast about the price of food. And this comes up so many times on this podcast in this space, the sustainability and regenerative space, that people are accustomed to looking for the best deal on things. They want to pay the least amount they can without understanding the implications of lower cost things and we want to train people to ask not why does this cost so much but why is this so cheap? (laughs) And we've seen that in food. We've seen it certainly with clothing. We talk about that a lot on here. And you talk about approaching your business with honor. We want to honor the makers. We want to honor the source. We want to honor the growers, the people that are out there farming the crops for the textiles that make our clothes,
0: all of those things. I have a thought just about that, this whole kind of the price structure and the idea that people are intrinsically trained to look for the best deal. Yeah, we all do it. We all do it. There's nothing villainous about that. I think the mindset shift is the difference between buying a consumable versus investing in either an experience or something that has more story. Yeah, a story like that's something that has a long term implication. Yeah. So when I think about what I'm doing is I'm telling people that what they're doing, they're investing in a lifestyle. And that means that things like low maintenance, when people say no maintenance, I scratch my head and I'm like, yeah, that's the wilderness. Yeah. Because there's no such thing in nature as no maintenance. But low maintenance is possible, but it's earned that it's earned over a long period of time. It's earned with a plan, and you invest in that plan. And so I work with people to help them age in place so that they can begin to make decisions in their landscape that will mean that there's less mowing, that there's less mulching, that there's less watering. So, Mother Nature wants, especially here on the East Coast, Mother Nature wants all the land covered in green, period. And she doesn't care what that green is. So, if you Have this desire to have a plant and then mulch and then a plant and then mulch and then a plant and then mulch. You will weed for the rest of your life. You will mulch for the rest of your life. (laughs) But if you're willing to agree with what Mother Nature is going to do with or without you, then you get to set your story on course for something that will be less maintenance down the road and maybe take fewer dollars. So I try to help people to understand that there are things that you invest in. And there are other things that you just consume. So when I'm thinking about my food, when I'm thinking about my land, I'm really looking at the long game of investment and say, I can have everything I want. The variable is the timeline. So if I don't have a ton of money up front, I can do a project over five years and do small incremental moves over five years and get what I want. Very different than the building trades, right? You got to put the roof on once you start the house. But in a landscape, you can create this longer timeline and make that investment and spend a little bit more on that investment so that it does have the regenerative qualities and the ability to stand the test of time.
1: So well said. Yes. Yeah.
2: So applicable to so many things too. And to your point about the green, in my yard, it's all about making peace with ground ivy. (laughs) 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 Do you all have that plant up there, the klechoma? Yeah, we've got ground eye. We a big
0: proponent for sowing clover and talon. I just love.
2: Oh, I was just clover. doing that this weekend. Yeah. In my garden in between the beds, I want to be able to walk barefooted. And it, And so I'm, I'm just doing clover instead of grass. Yeah. Yeah. You know I have a couple of specific gardening questions. I'll try um, to answer them. <laughs> <laughs> We're cheating. cheating. Oh, yeah, I know. But I'm Sneaking in a little <laughs> for advice. advice. No, I'm asking because I think <laughs> our listeners might want yeah. to know. Biochar. You mentioned biochar. I have some biochar. I don't know what to do with it. What do you do with biochar? Do you just mix it up in your soil or is there a simple answer to that? There's a simplified answer, but it is definitely complex. So I'm just going
0: to say anybody who wants to use biochar, you're going to need to do more research and just do what I tell you. Yeah. Okay. So biochar is basically wood that's been burned in the absence of oxygen. And so all of the fundamental structure of the wood is still in place but all of the biology is gone. There's no fire when it's burned. And then it's crushed. And what it creates is like a little condominium. There's spaces, there's a lot of pores in the biochar. And the biology can actually move into it. So organic matter and biology is drawn into these voids that used to have the biology of wood in there, but it's gone now. And this creates the ability for the biology to have protection and also to store and hold water it creates the spaciousness that we need in our soils that especially when you have problems with compacted soils the key with biochar is there has to be several ingredients so you have biochar you have organic matter and then you have biological life so when we're doing a regenerative practice we make this brownie mix which is the organic compost biochar and also an organic fertilizer. And we're mixing all that together. And then that gets blended in with the existing soil. If it's really bad soil and we can till it, then we'll till it. If it's decent soil, then we'll just use like a broad fork to just open the soil so that the compost will get down in it. And then we do all of our plantings, incorporating that in, and then we add a bio-inoculant, which is a combination of live biology that's suspended in solution, with a plant food and a biology food. So just think of like compost tea. Yeah, yeah. What you're basically doing is you're curating like the coolest party at a really awesome venue and hoping that that party gets started. That's ultimately what it is. And biochar is the venue. Biochar is... It's like you have the venue, which is your garden, but the biochar is all like the cool accoutrement in the place. I love that metaphor. I get it, yeah. The danger is that if you were to just broadcast biochar plain, biochar will attract every single bit of biology into it. And so if you have devoid or very little, you'll see an immediate yellowing of your plants Oh. because the biochar will steal it. So you need a lot of it so that you just make sure you curate that right guest list. So you need a lot of pieces. There are trainings out there about biochar, and so I would just say that doing a bit of a web search for trainings on how to use it really is the way to go. It's not that easy to find, and if you can find straight biochar versus charged biochar, you ideally you want charged, which means it already has some organics charged into it.
2: Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I had this stuff. I just really didn't know anything about it. And yeah, to your point, I hated to just throw it out there because I do not know what it was doing. <laughs> so that's great. So my husband and I were having this debate this morning. I have a big garden, but it's like perennial food forest. I don't really grow that many like annual vegetables, like the squashes and the tomatoes and stuff because we belong to a CSA and I don't have to use real estate for that, right? But he wants to do that. And he wants to turn over this little paddock we have in the front that was used for grazing animals for years and years and so the soil's not good it's just been like just whatever grass and pounded down by the animals and stuff So it's really not great soil so he said I want to get a tiller and start tilling it up and I said no I said let's do the lasagna gardening thing where you build up the soil from the top down so we're having this little debate and he goes I think sometimes if the soil is really bad you should probably give it a little till and that's what I heard you saying what do you think? I think that there's a couple of ways
0: to approach this. So tilling in and of itself in small measure, I'm not on the bad wagon that all tilling is bad. I think indiscriminate tilling is bad, and I think agricultural tilling upon acres and acres and acres of connected land can be very dangerous. But when you till in a small area, remember that carbon dioxide is taken in by all your plants. so, If you do your tilling at the point in time when all of your plants are leafed out, it's never going to make it up into the atmosphere. The plants all around you are going to suck it right in. So if we're talking about a 10 by 10 or even a 40 by 40 area and you've got oak trees and maple trees and all these trees around you, And maybe you've got shrubs and maybe you have an apple tree or whatever. A lot of that tillage, it's going to move right up into the atmosphere. The second thing I'm going to say is to direct till an area that has turf, any kind of turf in it, and then you're going to plant, you're going to fight. You're constantly going to fight because that turf is going to be more aggressive than the root system of the new plants that you put in. I'm not going to answer this entirely in order, but there are a couple of things that I would like you to consider. One is what are you going to grow? Because not every plant needs the same thing. So I would determine what you're going to grow first. Then next, what I would do is I would soil test your plots. So if you have just one, let's say big 10 by 10 area, then you'll take 12 cores and soil test and just determine what is there, and do a soil test that also tests organic matter. This is going to give you a sense of just your baseline, like what is the environment that you're actually working in. Once you have those two things, you have a choice. You can pull the turf up, so remove it, not till it. Literally just remove that top layer with a grape hoe so that it's being scraped off, and then begin to build soil. You can use a broad fork to open what's the ground there without tilling. And then you can get high quality compost from a farm, mix your biochar in with it. And then you could just cover it with four or five inches of a really good hardwood mulch, like wood chips. Like if you had to take some trees down, if you ever take trees down, as long as they're not diseased in the wood, save the wood chips. Because wood chips then put on top of all that, you just create a cooker and all of that biology starts to do the work. You could do all of that this year as your Project, let it stay like that over the winter, and then you will be all set to plant come next season.
2: When you say remove the turf, would it be the same thing, just to suppress the grass and just let it die here in the hot sun? Does that do the same thing? It would, but I don't believe you're going to get enough die-off. Okay. So I've worked with several people
0: who tried to solarize, and you can certainly do it. But I would say you're going to need to get everything down as soon as possible, and then you would certainly let it sit this whole year. I'm not sure if maybe you'd need to make it sit next year too. You'd have to check it, look and see, is it really dying off? And you might have some areas that die off really well and some areas not so great. I would think that you could just smother it. With, forget the plastic and the cardboard. I'm a little suspect of the cardboard treatment and I'm also a little suspect of the plastic treatment because then you have to do something with the plastic. Just get wood chips. Spend your money on five to six inches of wood chips and just smother the heck out of it. And in a couple of years, that will be the most amazing soil you've ever seen.
2: Yeah, I actually did that in the back. i call it my food forest. And you can get the wood chips absolutely free from the local tree company. Yeah, they'll just come dump it. Yep. There you go. They're so happy to have a
1: place to dump their chips. And it really is. It's like the spongiest, loveliest ground now. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's been about seven years. And that's crazy good soil back there. But you started with cardboard. When I had cardboard or newspaper to do it, but I didn't always have it. So you're always scrambling around looking for it. Can you tell a little bit about why you're suspect about the cardboard? I'm not sure that the cardboard we get doesn't have treatments in it. The inks,
0: the actual creation of the cardboard and I just think it's a step that's not needed. Same with newspaper. Yeah. I feel like if we're really committed to doing something like this, you got to give yourself like a three-year runway and do the wood chip treatment. And the great thing is with the wood chips, you can still plant things like blueberries and raspberries and any manner of fruit trees. Just cut a hole in the turf. Yeah. Build up the soil, put your fruit tree or put your blueberry and then just mulch the heck out of everything with all of these wood chips and you'll start getting harvest right away very quickly while you're also building soil i just
1: think it's a step you don't need makes sense what is it? it's the same thing right like cardboard is it's just a suppression to suppress the light and stuff. but you want to remember how many inputs you have in creating cardboard yeah that makes
2: sense to me and I've always been like, what's in this ink? You say I use soy inks, but what is it? But so if you go out there and you just start tilling under turf, you're going to really, you're just going to expose all of these crazy weed seeds and stuff. And that's just turning it up, right? That's just making it more vibrant. Yeah. I would never just till
0: turf. Just doesn't make sense. I would scrape the turf up or just bury the turf. One of the two. But the tilling of it is, first off, it's backbreaking work. You don't have a machine like a plow type machine, or it's just backbreaking.
2: Yeah, the till no till thing is a little more nuanced than we, yeah, tend to think in this space.
1: Yeah, it's also very buzzy. It's a buzzy way to talk about it.
2: Yeah, yeah and, and so it's really good to have all those kind of different thoughts about it, and like all things that matter,
1: there's nuance. Yes, so true. It's so true. Really
2: love the story of the little pocket park. (laughs) Are there any other just great stories of some of your favorite projects or the people you've encountered or whatever during this really fascinating work? I think the two things that I'll share is that with clients, I
0: think one of the most amazing things that I see with clients is when I often meet only one. If it's a couple, I'll, I'll often meet only one half of the couple. He's into gardening and the other person isn't. Somebody wants to spend the money on it and the other person doesn't agree or whatever. It's so common that happens. And when I see the shift in the behavior of the couple, when I see the shift in the behavior of the family, when I see them outside more, when I see them together, like I've worked for people where I only knew one of them. And then five years later, now the other one is so interested. So I'm seeing these life shifts. And that was also a big part of me naming it lifescaping. And that is just the coolest thing in the world when I get people to chime in. When there's been so much resistance and then the resistance comes down, that has really been fantastic. And on the coaching side, I think that where I've really been struck by how regenerative systems work is that entrepreneurs they're incredibly passionate and driven people, just by nature, by very nature, but they're also some of the most depleted, tired overworked people that I've ever seen as well. And when I see new life being breathed into them and into their businesses, because they are starting to adopt regenerative practices for themselves, for their lives and for their businesses, they just light up again. And it is the coolest thing to see an owner that feels downtrodden finally let go of that toxic person and watch their culture just rebound or finally raise their rates And have every single one of their Koreans just stay on board. Like, it's these stories that we tell ourselves about how maybe we're just not enough yet. That really all life is exactly enough. It's really just how we approach it. And I just think the regenerative practice, again, whether you're working with your plot of land in the front of your house or you're working with the mindset and the system of your business, it works.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: What an amazing thing that you've intertwined those two together into a career. I just love that
1: so much. It's so cool. Thank you. Yeah, there's just so much to it. What does slow living mean to you? That's such a great question because I am anything but slow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we feel the same way. Slow living to me
0: is about intention. To me, it's about making this intention To go after some purpose, right? Some purpose driven focus. And then really embracing that long game strategy. So for me, I wanna come up with the answer, wanna come up with the idea. And as soon as I have the idea, I wanna do it. And my practice has been to allow myself to wait, to step back, especially if there's a problem, try not to just jump and solve it. Maybe just step back and ask yourself, gee, I wonder why this is arising. Is there a bigger message in here than just the problem? And that has been really necessary through the whole pandemic because I presently employ 25 people. And when the pandemic and the shutdowns first happened, my people, many of them, they don't have a store of money where they could just live their lives and not work. And Mother Nature was certainly not going to sit back and just hold. So I jumped into making sure that we were defined as essential workers. And then Because I had no idea how to run a business in a pandemic, I kept having to take a step back and look at it again and cry a few tears and put my head under my pillow and then come back out and be like, all right, I'm going to try this. (laughs) And so, slow living. Yeah. I have a huge vegetable garden. I do yoga. There are all these things that I embrace so that I can be in the moment. But for me, I really think intentional focus that helps you to live purpose-driven requires a sense of steeping in the moment and that's slow living to me.
2: Love it, that's so true. And it's certainly with your business being with plants and seasons. There's no better lesson than if you make a mistake or do something wrong, then, you know, you got to wait a whole year to try it again. And sometimes you think, what? No peaches this year? Not really.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, you we're know, done. So some creature ate every single broccoli in my whole garden. Oh, so let's, yeah, whatever. Not this year. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other piece about it is that our lives change, right? So we have this wonderful predictability. It's spring, and then it's summer, and then it's fall, and then it's winter, and then it's spring, and then it's summer, is fall. Like, we have this great predictability. But we need to also embrace that every spring might be a little bit different. And even if the actual weather feels the same, like I have children. Mm-hmm. My children are growing up, I'm tasting being an empty nester now. And I realize that the things that were the pattern of my life before, I mean that whole pattern, my husband and I have been on this journey of reimagining our marriage and our home life because
1: what are you gonna do? There's no kids in the house. So there's nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's not not true, true. by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: So it's so funny you should say that because I actually just wrote this little article essay thing for our membership community in which I said, every year the garden's different. Yeah. It's spring and these things come up, but it's different every year. Things change. And also, we're different every year. Yeah. So we come to the new garden as a new self every year and every season.
1: Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that. Yeah. It is a two-way street, man. Yes. It gets so reciprocal. Yes. So...
2: This is a ridiculous question to ask Monique, but, and she's probably already answered it many times, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What does the good dirt mean to you? The thing that comes to mind right away is it's gold. It's the richness. It's yeah, the lushness of
0: growth and living. You can look at it just as the soil and just when you're in the face of amazing soil. Mm-hmm. But you also know when you step into community, whether that community is lush and rich and regenerative in and of itself. So Mm. I think that a good dirt really is when you get into vibrancy, health vibrancy, you just know it. You just know it. We're built to kick up on that.
1: That's great. Gosh, that's awesome. I could talk to you all day. Is there anything else you wanted to chat about in this conversation that you feel like we didn't touch on? Or I like to ask, is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with about what you most want the audience to understand about? The work that you do I
0: think the thing that I would want people to take away from this more than anything is that the art of gardening regenerative gardening whether you're growing ornamentals just to look at whether you're growing food or medicinals or cutting flowers or whatever it is this is accessible to you like it's your birthright to be able to do it and mm-hmm. the reason why I wrote the book Stop Landscaping, Start Lifescaping is because I wanted it to be accessible to everybody. I wanted this idea of moving from the dream of an idea all the way to first putting the shovel in the ground, that there is actually a system to that. And that system is something that can empower anybody to do this work. It's just the intention to do it. And so I just wanna leave people with that. I think the book is definitely accessible and easy to bring that hold. But more than anything, just know that it's your birthright to have access to nature and to be restored by it. Whatever that means to you, it could be walking in the forest, it could be walking on the beach, doesn't matter. Like it could be walking in your own yard, but we all, it is our birthright to have access to it and to be restored by it.
2: Yeah, that's such a wonderful reminder. The book, when did you write it and how were you led into writing it? And tell us a little bit about that.
0: So I've been writing for decades. I started in Gosh, I think the early 90s, have in the late '80s, but the early 90s, I started doing a newsletter back when you've had to like send it to the printer and then fold it in half and put the little wafer on it and then put a stamp on it. I probably had to lick the stamps back then. So I have been interested in education for as long as I can remember and have always leaned into education-based marketing. Give people the information that they want and they'll find you if they want more. Got process? Yeah. And when I had wanted to write a book, I was just really, yeah, I've been writing for so long and it might've taken me almost seven years to write the book. Maybe it was five years, but it was a really long time because I didn't know what I was doing and I was working and raising kids at the same time. And at the point in time where I was getting closer to finishing both my turns, got really sick and, and then both died. And so it, it was just a lot going on when I was trying to write this. But ultimately I wanted to write it because as I said earlier, I wanted to simplify this idea of life I wanted to make it accessible. So I tried to write it as simple as I could and weave in like a bunch of stories. And yeah, so I did it. And
1: maybe someday I'll write another one. I don't know. Hopefully it will not take me seven years. <laughs> yeah, we can get that. So where can people find it? And where else can people find you? How else can they learn more from you? My website is, is www.thegardencontinuum.com.
0: And You can buy the book, right on there, and you can just Google, stop landscaping, start livescaping, and it's available where all books are sold. And my happy place is Instagram. So I have two Instagram feeds. One is monique.allen, and the other is the Garden Continuum. And there's a link in the bio, and you can get an autographed book that way, as well as being connected to all my freebies. Like I have so many freebies just because I like to write.
2: Yeah, see that it was published March 2020.
0: Yeah, it was crazy. I wanted to honor my mother and launch it on her birthday, which was March 23rd. And the whole world closed the week before, and every single yeah engagement that I had booked, everything that at my launch party, everything canceled. So I like scrambled and did this like little launch on Facebook. I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> and uh, but that's how I learned about podcasting. And so I've been meeting just amazing people that do the coolest podcasts and that's just been my avenue ever since
2: yeah so something funny is we had the exact same experience our book that had been in the works for years finally the launch date i think it was the same week or that same day it was, was like march 23rd or 4th or
1: 5th or something the lady farmer guide to slow living i know lady farmer guide to slow living march 2020 and the, and the subtitle was cultivating simplicity close to home
2: oh cultivating sustainable simplicity close to home. Isn't it funny how when you write something and later later on you can't remember, what was the
1: title of her book? (laughs) But yeah, it was the weirdest timing. It just, it was like so kismet. Yeah. That whole thing. It was. And somebody we talked to the other day, same thing, attainable, sustainable. Yeah,
2: her book, after many delays, came out mid-March 2020. March
1: 2020. Wow, that's crazy. I know. Like, many guests and Julia Watkins simply living her book, March 2020. Like, weird. Many people that we've interviewed, same story. (laughs) That's naughty. Yeah, it was so weird because then what do you do?
2: Like, you're just trying to figure out how to put it out in the world and... It's weird. It's good for people that if you're like all the, the idea of all those launch parties and stuff is kind of like oh yeah oh, I don't really have to do this and, and all of a sudden it was like I don't
1: have no. to do that <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: whatever. <laughs> so, Monique, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a wonderful conversation, and please, we'll be in touch. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was lovely. Really nice to be with you both.
1: Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This
2: show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley.
1: For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at we are lady That's we are lady farmer, or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on the Good Dirt. Goodbye.